This morning we continue our sermon series on the eight marks of the church. So far we've looked at the spirit-filled church, the son-confessing church, the scripture-keeping church, and the sacrament-observing church. And each week we've been focusing on a myth about the church which is perpetuated by the world wanting to twist what the church is, what it has to say, and what its purpose is, and also by Satan who wants to weaken the church and make it ineffective. We need to be aware of these myths and be united together with the Holy Spirit to continually strengthen the church. So each week we talked about an urban legend which are misguided, dangerous, or both, and the same goes for these myths about the church. Who remembers throwing rice at a newly married couple? Does anybody did you ever do that? You may remember then that the practice was stopped because birds would eat the rice left on the ground, and sometimes, sometime later the rice would expand and the birds would explode. How many people believe that rice is dangerous for birds? How many people do not believe rice is dangerous for birds? Got about half of you. For some reason, people just can't get enough of urban legends about food causing living creatures to explode. For years, couples playing their wedding, couples playing their wedding have been warned about not throwing rice at a ceremony because birds will be tempted to eat it, causing them to blow up. Now that cannot actually happen. Rice, whether it's cooked or uncooked, poses no threat to birds. But Connecticut State Legislator May Smittle tried to introduce a bill in 1985 that would ban rice throwing. She called the bill an act prohibiting the use of uncooked rice at nuptial affairs and insisted birds can't digest uncooked rice. Smittle says ministers had told her that they found dead birds after weddings victimized by innocent rice celebrations. And the myth was repeated in Ann Lander's advice column. In 2002, a pro project conducted by a biology professor at the University of Kentucky tested, tested this theory and found that rice, while rice expands in size by 33% when soaked, bird seed expands by 40%. And since your bird feeder isn't surrounded by detonated birds, rice is probably fine. And this professor even fed rice to birds and noted no adverse effects. Today's mark of the church is the spirit united church. And the myth is you can be united by any vision in your church and still be a healthy church. This myth can be dangerous because it can cause professing children of God to be united around a vision for the family of God that is not in line with God's vision. And it can lead the family of God into a lesser vision than he has for them as their good father. Also, the vision for the church is made effective by the Holy Spirit. And if Satan can get the church to believe that any man-made vision will do, then the Holy Spirit is taken out of the equation, and the church is made even weaker and less effective. And we know this is a myth because Jesus said, a clear mark of the healthy church would be a church filled with people who are united together by the Holy Spirit around the mission that God has given them. So before we start to study this uh, fifth mark of the church, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you this morning asking you to fill us with your Holy Spirit, uniting us together as your church. Unite us to be your witnesses in the world as we pursue, grow, and multiply disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. So each week we've been looking at the different marks of the church, and we're studying what Jesus has taught, what the early church has taught, and what the apostles have taught. And this morning it's all about the Spirit United Church. 
So we'll first look at what Jesus taught about it in Acts 1, verses 6 to 8. This is what God's word says. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the disciples knew or thought they knew what their mission was going to be. Like most of the Jewish people, the disciples still believed that the Messiah would usher in the kingdom of God and that it would be realized by Israel conquering its enemies and being restored to national prominence that they felt was due them by being God's chosen people. The disciples were probably thinking of the positions of authority that God would give each one of them in that kingdom. But notice Jesus doesn't answer their question. But he tells them, and I'm paraphrasing, it's none of your business. He says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. The Greek word for time is chronos, and the, the word for dates, or some versions have seasons, is kairos. Chronos denotes a duration of time. Kairos is event-oriented time. Chronos marks quantity. Kairos marks quality. And Jesus wants them to understand that the purposes of God for the world is really none of their concern. All time is under God's authority, and his timing is always perfect. And then Jesus tells his disciples two things. One, they would receive power, but it's not going to be the political power that they're thinking of. It would be the same supernatural power that Jesus exhibited while he was on the earth, and it would be given to them for a very special purpose. This was the far greater power of the Holy Spirit, and it would unite them as they fulfilled that purpose. Zechariah 4, 6b says this, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Just as Jesus had been anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism, his disciples would be similarly anointed to be his witnesses in the world. These ordinary men would do extraordinary things and even greater things than Jesus did while he was on the earth. The Holy Spirit would make their preaching effective, people would be converted, and the kingdom of God would grow wildly. Wearsby states, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not a luxury, it's an absolute necessity. We can't fulfill the mission God has given us without the Holy Spirit. Second, he tells them that they would be his witnesses. What were they going to be witnesses of? They were going to be witnesses to what they saw and heard of Jesus while he was on this earth. They were to be witnesses to who he was and what he came to earth to do. They were to be witnesses to the good news that Jesus Christ came to save the world from their sins. The Greek word for witness is martis, which means to avow what one has seen, heard, or knows. Our word martyr comes from the same root, denoting someone who bears testimony for another person or some cause with his death. The disciples were going to witness to what they saw and heard from Jesus, and they would bear that testimony to the world, even if it meant their death. And we know that all the disciples except for John died a martyr's death. Lastly, God's mission for the disciples was going to be organized and global. They would be his witnesses to Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what does this passage mean for us? One, we will be effective witnesses if we witness to the personal, to our personal experience with Jesus. We can only witness about what Jesus has done for us and our own personal salvation. Two, this witness is a witness of deeds more than it is words. There was a story in Barclay's commentary about David Livingstone, who was a missionary and explorer in Central Africa. Journalist explorer H.M. Stanley, who was famous for his search of David Livingstone, said this, If I had been with him any longer, I would have been compelled to be a Christian. And he never spoke to me about it at all. The sheer weight of the witness of David Livingstone's life was irresistible. Could that be said of you or of me? Third, to be a witness means to be loyal no matter the cost, even if it means our death. For us, it probably means being willing to die to ourselves and to give up control of our agenda and our purposes for our own life. But we must be willing to die for the faith when it comes to that. For who are we to be witnesses to? And where, to be, where are we to be witnesses at? Who has the Lord put on your heart to share his good news with? Who in your life may miss out on the abundant life that they could have on this earth and eternal life they could have in heaven if you stay silent? We need to be on the lookout for those who need to hear the good news of Jesus. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, God will show us who we need to be witnesses to. And we're to be witnesses where God has placed us, starting at where we live, work, play, and learn. Our mission to pursue, grow, and multiply disciples starts with the most intimate relationships where people really know us and can observe our life and witness. But also means our nation and the world. We are called to be his witnesses, and it is important that we are conduits or channels of the Holy Spirit and not just reservoirs or holding tanks. <clears throat> Next, we want to look at what the early church taught about the Spirit United Church, and that's found in Acts 4, 32 to 35. This is what God's Word says. All the believers were of one heart, or were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that there were at work in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So in this passage, we see both the supernatural and the practical implications of being a spirit-united church. Imagine the scene. The church was born of people from all walks of life. They're all from different countries. They speak different languages. The only way that the early church could function with the kind of unity that was of one heart and one mind was with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the only one who could bind these hearts and minds together. There was no way this could be done through human through human uh, works. When our hearts and minds are truly transformed by Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit can make us one, unified to fulfill, fulfill the great commission of pursue, grow, grow, and multiply disciples. 
And I find it telling that right before our passage, we see that the apostles and all the believers were praying. And they were told that they were of one heart and one mind. If we are truly praying for each other and each other's needs, this unity can never find a foothold here in the church. This unity of heart and mind was because of the common bond found in Christ. They had been shown grace and mercy by Jesus as he died on the cross for their sins and rose again. They had also been and would continue to be persecuted for their faith in Jesus. Through their struggles in the faith, they came to truly know and understand each other's hearts, minds, goals, desires, and personal struggles. The Holy Spirit worked in the lives of these people who were so different from each other and removed all selfishness and self-centeredness from their hearts so that they would be unhindered to do the work that God had called them to do. And then the practical implication of this supernatural work was a generosity which flowed out of a love for one another. They realized that their possessions were not their own, but were God's. And they were God's to be used in any way he saw fit. They were stewards, not owners of what God had given them. They sold their possessions so the community would help, could help anyone who was in need. And imagine this, scripture said that there was no needy people among them. Barclay says we can note two things from this passage. One, they had an intense sense of responsibility for each other. It seemed unthinkable to them that anyone could have too much and someone else could have too little. And two, this awoke in them a real desire to share all they had, and it was utterly spontaneous. The early church was united, unselfish, and unafraid. Their prayer in verse 24 was answered as they were given power to testify to the resurrection of their Lord and Savior. They knew their identity and exactly what God expected from them. As believers draw closer to God and to each other and are of one heart and mind through the Holy Spirit, they become a powerful force proclaiming the good news of Jesus with boldness. God's people allowed God's spirit to make them one in heart and mind. There was an unlimited commitment to Christ and to each other, and it was expressed by unrestrained, unrestrained loyalty to each other. So how can we tell if Ivyville Church is filled with the spirit and is of one, of, in one heart and one mind? First, we will truly want to know and care about what is happening in our lives. We'll want to know and care about each other's burdens, struggles, and needs. We will pray for each other. And we'll know when and how to help in specific and tangible ways. Like the early church who valued each other more than they valued possessions, we will truly value one another above the things of this world. We'll see the Holy Spirit work in us to remove, self remove selfishness and self-centeredness from our hearts. And second, we will be unified by the Holy Spirit to accomplish our God-given mission to pursue, grow, and multiply disciples. This happens when we boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, where we live, work, play, and learn. If we are a spirit-united church, the Holy Spirit will be at work daily in our lives, and we'll see the evidence of that as we are filled with the Spirit, as we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as we keep and obey God's word, and as we observe the sacraments of baptism 
and holy communion. Next, we'll look at what the apostles taught about the Spirit United Church. We find this in Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. Follow along as I read that. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians laying the doctrinal foundation of Christianity. Then in chapter 4, he begins to discuss spiritual unity. He did it this way because our unity must be built on the solid foundation of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our unity must be built on the truths of God's word first. And then it grows when we love one another and we work together to live out the Great Commission. Paul relates seven basic spiritual realities that unite all true Christians. First, there is one body. We are many parts in many places, speaking different languages, having different cultures, but we are one body. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 31. Christ is the head and the church is the body. There must be unity for the work of the church to be accomplished, and this unity is found, of a, found in a common love for Jesus and for one another. Second, there is one spirit. The Greek word pneuma means spirit and breath. Just like a human body is dead without breath, the church would be dead without the Holy Spirit. Third, there is one hope. We are all called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost world. We all have the same goal, which is a world redeemed in Christ. And this is accomplished as we pursue, grow, and multiply disciples. Four, there is one Lord. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Christ died and rose again for the entire world and for the church, and he is the only one we should be worshiping and obeying. The Greek word that he uses for Lord is kurios, which means master. And it was also the title for the Roman emperor. Paul is saying that Christians are united together because they are Jesus' possession and are in service of one master and one king. Next, there is one faith. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Jesus raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our faith is in Jesus Christ alone and no one or anything else. This confession identifies and unifies the church. Next, there is one baptism. In the early church, baptism was a public confession of faith. Membership of the church comes through baptism and identifies a person as belonging to Christ. Baptism is the unifying mark of all Christians. Lastly, there is one God, and he is our Father. As Christians, we are all God's children in the same family, worshiping, loving, serving the same Father. And because of this, we should be able to walk together in unity. Paul ends with three statements about God. He says God is over all meaning that he is in control of all things. God is through all, meaning he created the world and is still actively and powerfully working in the world and in us, guiding, directing, 
sustaining, upholding, and loving. And God is in all, which talks about the presence of God being in his children. We live in a God-created, God-controlled, God-sustained, and God-filled world. So we not only see this mark proclaimed in us through teaching, but also through the picture or a metaphor of the household of God. And I'm reading from Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. This is what God's word says. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his, by his spirit. Paul gives us a picture of a building made with stones. This building is made of people who used to be strangers and foreigners, but they're now citizens and members of God's household. The foundation of this building is the apostles and the prophets, and the chief cornerstone is none other than Jesus Christ himself. The key, of course, to this building is Jesus Christ, because he is the one who gives life, and through his spirit comes unity in the household of God. All the pieces of this building join together, and they rise to become a holy temple in the Lord. This living temple is holy, set apart for God, and made to glorify the Lord. In this temple, God is worshiped, and he receives glory, honor, and praise. Christ dwells in the hearts of his people, and the heart is the basic worship place in God's kingdom on earth. That's important because if you're just coming to this building on a Sunday morning and going through the motions and not worshiping God in your heart, your worship will be weak and meaningless. Barclay says the church will only realize her unity when she realizes that she exists to give a home and a dwelling place where the spirit of Christ can dwell and where all people who love Christ can meet in that spirit. Brings us to an important question. How will we know if this mark, the Spirit United Church, marks our church? First, our church will feel like a loving family. The household of God with God as Father is a place where loving one another is a dominant feature. Next, our church will look like a good marriage. Ephesians 5, 31 to 32 talks about the two becoming one. And that's what the church in Christ should be. United as one. Next, our church will feel like a healthy body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 talks about being one body with many parts unified by the Holy Spirit. There is unity and diversity in the body of Christ. Next, our church will look like a united nation. 1 Peter 2.9 talks about us being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We are called by God and set apart to do his will in this world. And lastly, our church will have theological, philosophical, relational, and missional unity. 
will be unified together in every way. Our desire as a body of believers is to have a church filled with people who are united together by the Holy Spirit around the mission that God has given his church in this world. So as we look back at the survey questions that you took last year, pertaining to this mark, all five questions were in the most difficult for us. The second most difficult of all the questions for us as a church was this. The people in our church know their specific role in helping to accomplish the mission and vision of our church and desire to do so. The third most difficult question was, the people in our church know the mission and vision of our church and are fully supportive of it. The seventh most difficult question was, the people in our church know the core values of our church and consistently live out those values with each other and those outside our church. The ninth most difficult question was, is it clear that our church is united by the Spirit of God and not just good ideas? And lastly, the 17th most difficult question for us as a church was our leaders, the leaders of our church are clearly united by the Spirit as they lead our church. <clears throat> so let me start with knowing the mission and vision of Idaville Church. Our mission to pursue, grow, and multiply disciples is in many different places to remind us of it. It's on the banners up here to my left. It's on the front of your bulletin. It's on page three of the 2022 yearbook, among some other places. Now, the vision we are preparing for company is new for 2022, and that came out of the board's dream retreat. You can find that on the top of your, on the front, on the top of the front page of your bulletin, and also on page three of the yearbook. Our core values are also new this year, and came out of the board dream retreat. You can find them on the front of your bulletin. And we'll be brainstorming some other places in the church building to put those so we all can be reminded of them. So how can we live out these core values with each other and those outside the church? I would suggest we could all pick one or two and be intentional about living them out in our daily lives. Two that I would suggest. The first one is number two. We are a family that is loving, caring, and welcoming. If we do this, this will go a long way in living out our 2022 theme of love one another. It would also fulfill our vision of we are preparing for company and being ready when company shows up to Idaville Church. Another one would be, would be number four. We are a church that reaches out, spreading God's word, God's glory, and God's promises to those who do not know him. We can live this out with those who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that brings us to the first next step on the back of your communication card this morning, which is to pick one or two of our core values and live them out in our church and outside our church. Next, knowing our, our specific role in helping to accomplish the mission and vision of our church and desire to do so. First, I hope we all have a desire to live out God's mission for the church to pursue, grow, and multiply disciples. The vision we are preparing for company is the way we want to act as a body of believers in order to accomplish that mission. Our themes of unity, holiness, 
and love one another are ways we can live out that vision. If we are unified, pursuing holiness and loving one another, we will be prepared for company and we better equipped to accomplish the mission. The best way that we can know our specific role is by taking the spiritual gifts survey and then serving in the way that, ways that God has gifted you. One of our goals this year is a 20% increase in volunteers on Sunday morning and Wednesday evenings, but it can also include serving at other times and events outside those days. And that brings us to the second next step, which is to take the spiritual gifts survey if I haven't already done so in the past quarter. You can see me to get your survey. If you did take your survey home to complete it, please bring it back when you're finished, filling it out so I can record your results, and then I'll give it back to you. The last two questions talk about it being clear that our church is united by the Spirit and that our leaders are, and the leaders of our church are clearly united by the Spirit as they lead our church. You know, this is something we all need to evaluate for ourselves. We all need to search our own hearts to, to see if we are a Spirit-united people. As we become more and more a Spirit-united people, we will then become a Spirit-united church that is united together by the Holy Spirit around the mission that God has given the church. That's what I want for myself. It's what I want for this church, and I hope you do too. That brings us to the last next step this morning, which is search my heart to see if I'm united with the Spirit of God around God's mission for the church. So as Gina Roxy come to lead us in a final song, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we leave your house and go out into the world this morning, help us to be more loving, help us to be united together as one, as we are to be united with you. Help us to be a healthy body, unified by your spirit, and help us to be a united nation, holy and set apart to do your will in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.